station, Houston, on Space to Ground 2 for an early wake-up. Early on the morning of November 15th, 2021, Ground Control had a rude awakening for the seven astronauts aboard the International Space Station. We were recently informed of a satellite breakup and need to have you guys start reviewing the safe haven procedure. Safe haven are two words that no astronaut ever wants to hear. The astronauts were instructed to urgently shelter in their safety capsule, the Dragon. The International Space Station's orbit was crossing paths with a cloud of space debris, thousands of pieces of metal shrapnel. And heads up 15 minutes to the next debris field past TCA. There are copies. And is the uh, conjunction still yellow risk or has it changed? It's an equivalent yellow uh, for the next debris pass. The International Space Station and the cloud of debris were hurtling toward one another. At more than 17,500 miles per hour, a collision would be catastrophic. Even a small piece of space junk, the size of a penny, would hit the space station at 10 times the force of a bullet. Amazingly, the International Space Station could withstand that. But if it collided with something bigger, say the size of a grapefruit, the entire station would be uninhabitable. And the reason for this particular bit of space junk? Seven astronauts had to scramble to their safety capsules after Russia blew up one of its own satellites with an Earth-based missile. Russia had fired a missile into space and blew up one of its own satellites. And they did it all for show. It was a warning to the rest of the world. Nice satellite you got there. Be a real shame if somebody blew it up. Every 90 minutes, the space station's orbit crossed paths with the orbit of the cloud of space junk. Each pass threatened the lives of the astronauts on board, two of whom, by the way, were Russian. The U.S. State Department condemned the Russian action. The Russian Federation recklessly conducted a destructive satellite test of a direct ascent anti-satellite missile against one of its own satellites. The test has so far generated over 1,500 pieces of contractable orbital debris. This cloud of debris is still in Earth's orbit because we haven't figured out a way to remove the debris. In fact, no one has figured out a practical way to remove any space debris. The 1,500 or so big pieces will be tracked but many are too small to track. Thousands more of those pieces will be racing around the Earth in orbit at mind-boggling speeds, alongside satellites and space stations, basically forever. This test will significantly increase the risk to astronauts and cosmonauts on the International Space Station, as well as to other human spaceflight activities. This episode, we take on the diplomatic conundrum of space junk, and meet the experts laying the groundwork for an international treaty. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ around this globe of ours. Space is exciting. It spurs our imaginations. And it forces us to ask big questions. Space, it affects us all. Space can be a 
lot of things happening in space. Because space is the world's newest warfighting domain. If the whole Russian space missile space station thing rings a bell, it could be because you saw the award-winning film starring the husband of famous human rights lawyer Amal Clooney. There's always something to do. I tried everything. Did you try the soft landing jets? They're for landing, so... Well, landing is launching. It's the same thing. Didn't you learn about that in training? Gravity is science fiction, but it's starting to look like a documentary, other than the fact that Sandra Bullock splashed down to Earth unscathed. The threat of space junk has been capturing imaginations long before the 2021 crisis or the making of gravity. Of course, I have a legacy that I can't get rid of. If you're going to talk about space junk, you have to talk about Donald Kessler. And yes, the man has a legacy. There is a whole space junk scenario named after him. Kessler syndrome. Kessler is retired now. He doesn't normally give interviews, but every time our producer approached him to talk about it, he was open to it. He cares about the cause. I was at our dining facility, and one of the persons next to me heard that I used to work for NASA. And she said, oh, when you were at NASA, did you know this person that generated this debris interest? I didn't say a word. I just showed him my dining badge that had my name on it. And they said, oh, it's you. (laughs) Yep, it's him. A lot of people, like me, worry about space junk now, thanks to Kessler. He didn't set out to change how people thought about space. In the late 1970s, he was working at NASA's Environmental Effects Project Office, and he wanted to put together a paper about this idea he just couldn't shake, even though, technically, it wasn't part of his job. It was something that I wanted to do, and I had a little bit of extra time to put that paper together and get it published before my management said, there's other things you ought to be doing right now. I snuck it in. It was 1978, only two decades into the space age, and human beings had already sent a lot of stuff into space. There were spent rocket fuel containers, defunct satellites, and all sorts of nuts and bolts and other garbage that was just par for the course anytime someone sent a new satellite into space. And all that junk would just stay up there, orbiting Earth. Kessler's theory was that the more things we put up into orbit, the more likely those things would be to collide and then break into smaller pieces of junk. And those pieces would continue to collide, making more and more pieces of junk, causing more and more collisions. It's really a pretty simple concept. If we keep adding stuff to space unchecked and never find a way to bring it back to Earth, we're going to cause real issues in the long term for our use of space. Enough debris could make it virtually impossible to send anything into space through the Earth's orbit. No more going to the moon, no more GPS, no more satellite internet, and no more Google Earth. Forever. Kessler's theory started generating buzz before he even published the paper. Somebody from the United Nations called and asked for information about the paper and wanted a copy of it. And uh, it hadn't been publicly released yet. His paper turned heads at NASA, too. When it finally got published and it received a lot of attention, then management said, OK, let's hear more about this. And the center director immediately, once he understood what the whole project was about, he just said, we crazy not to continue this work. And 
his assistant, then led uh, a delegation to every major country, made it very quickly into an issue that was being addressed at the international level. Kessler and his team at NASA traveled around the world to warn other countries about the hazards of filling space with, well, junk. They went to the UK and the Soviet Union. In China, their hosts took them on a tour of the Great Wall and Tiananmen Square. In each location, Kessler presented his warning to a room full of powerful people. If we keep mucking up space, he warned, it will ruin it for all of us. That got everybody on the same page about working with it. The work of Kessler and his team led to the formation of the Interagency Space Debris Coordination Committee, the first international organization working to keep space sustainable. It was a huge step toward acknowledging that space was not a limitless resource. Let's give a much-deserved round of applause for the act of international collaboration. Because you already know it didn't last. NASA says an anti-satellite test conducted by India resulted in hundreds of pieces of orbital debris, some of which is at the same altitude as the International Space Station. It was a Russian's weapons test that created more than 1,500 pieces of space junk. In January 2007, the U.S. watched as China launched this anti-satellite missile. It went up into orbit and blew up an old Chinese satellite. Despite Kessler's warnings, the United States and the Soviet Union would continue on occasion to blow up satellites in space on purpose. Eventually, China and then India joined them. Russia, last couple of years, doing an anti-satellite test. That just doesn't make any sense. The biggest actors in space are knowingly polluting valuable orbits. It's a huge threat to the use of space. So why haven't we reached an international agreement? to just stop. When I brought that up to other people, they said you'll never get any international law changed. That's just almost impossible to do, but that can't really be true, or else you'd have never gotten international law to begin with. Let's take a brief detour, because I want to convey the true scale of what's happening in orbit and why concerns about the Kessler syndrome are coming to a head now. Researchers from the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory are busy studying melting glaciers from sea level to space. And now, with the help of newly launched satellites, NASA is hoping to more accurately predict what's ahead. For 60 years, we've been sending satellites into orbit to collect information about the weather and the climate, to take pictures of the Earth and the stars, and to talk to each other. Google Earth relies on satellites. So does GPS. A lot of technology we take for granted only works because of satellites. And we're adding more. A lot more. Today, private companies are launching constellations of hundreds, sometimes thousands of small satellites into space. Starlink has more than 4,500 satellites providing global internet access with plans to have more than 42,000. There's also a company called Planet with a constellation of more than 200 satellites that takes a picture of the Earth every day. 
Other companies with similar constellations include OneWeb, Amazon, and there are a bunch of smaller companies like Viasat and HughesNet also building out their own constellations. The number of objects in space over the past five years has doubled. Most of these satellites hang out in low Earth orbit or LEO. LEO is the lowest orbit, anywhere between 200 and 1200 miles above the surface of the Earth, making it hot real estate for all kinds of satellites, relaying information from the heavens down to us Earthlings. We also need to go through it to get to everything else in space. If that orbit is filled with debris, those missions become a lot riskier. Putting any satellite into orbit is going to create some debris. On the whole, what we've gained from our use of satellites, including advancements in science and technology, has outweighed the cost, at least in my opinion. But there are some things we do in LEO that are certainly not worth it, like when Russia blew up that satellite in 2021. Basically, ever since we have had satellites, the U.S. and the Soviet Union and now Russia developed capabilities to attack those satellites. And so that had been tested in those two countries since the beginning of the space age. Mariel Borowitz is an expert on international space policy. Like a lot of other space experts, she is very concerned about Kessler syndrome. She knows that the addition of thousands of privately owned satellites means that we need to start being much more intentional about how we use low Earth orbit. And one obvious place to start is by stopping tests of missiles that blow up things in space. It's only relatively recently that there's been this increase in once again testing what we would call a kinetic anti-satellite weapon. So it's a weapon that essentially shoots a missile up into space that either hits the satellite that it's trying to destroy or just gets near that satellite and explodes. Why are these countries blowing up their own stuff? Let's be honest, these are war games. Conducting an anti-satellite test is an implied threat to every other nation's satellites. We rely heavily on satellites for all sorts of things, but one really important use is keeping an eye on each other's nukes. It might sound counterintuitive, but we actually want our enemies to be able to watch us just as we watch them, to confirm that no one is attempting a sneak attack. If we lost that ability, I don't need to spell it out for you. It would be bad. In a more immediate sense, these tests put astronauts in danger. It could be an actual collision that causes damage to the space station and potentially harms or kills astronauts. One of the only things that can be done to protect the space station and valuable satellites is just to track as much of the debris orbiting Earth as possible. The United States Department of Defense does this with something called the Space Surveillance Network. The U.S. is a big leader in a lot of space situational awareness or space domain awareness, so tracking all the objects in space, doing the analysis to see when a a conjunction might happen, sharing that information. When the Space Surveillance Network sees that a collision is about to occur, all it can do is issue a warning. You can try to get out of the way, although in space, maneuvering is pretty hard. If you're an astronaut, you're going to hunker down. Otherwise, maybe just cross your fingers. Obviously, this method has its limitations. 
because some debris is just too small to track. Still, right now, it's the only solution to the problem we have. It's hard to point your fingers at someone for acting badly when you can't really point to, okay, what norm are you breaking or, you know, what rule or what principle of response behavior are you breaking? That's Victoria Sampson. She works for an organization called Secure World Foundation. They're focused on keeping space secure, sustainable, and peaceful so space can be used to make life better on Earth. More importantly, Victoria is a friend of mine. We have been advocating for sustainable space policies for longer than I can remember. I don't actually know the answer to this question, and I'm embarrassed that I don't. How did you first get interested in space? Um, Some would argue I'm still not interested in space. I got into space completely by happenstance. My interest was more in international relations. I think I now remember this. When I first met you, you were working on missile defense. Oh, yeah. Yeah, missile defense was my first love. I even wrote a book that approximately 100 people bought on missile defense. You you don't like writing books no one reads? Not for me. More of an op-ed kind of gal. Victoria has been pushing for policies to address space debris for many years. I always like to say that debris is agnostic. It does not care who you are. It does not care if you're an ally of the country that created the debris. So the, the, I think the kind of anti-satellite weapons that create debris, those are the ones everyone agrees definitely should not be tested, should not be done. Victoria works with another space expert, Brian Whedon. Brian's also a friend of mine. It's a big issue for us. Okay. Yeah, we... So you're as freaked out as I am. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, where, do, where do I start on this, right? I think if there's anything the world should be able to agree to. It's that deliberately destroying satellites to test weapons of marginal military utility shouldn't be done and and, and probably should be banned. Like Victoria and Brian, I have experience advocating for sustainability in space. So I know firsthand how exhausting this can be. Every year at the same conference in Geneva, I used to give the same talk to the same group of people about preventing the destruction of satellites in orbit. It never went anywhere. But the fondue was great. I had this just, I don't know if you experienced this frustration, uh, but I mean, I remember just constantly saying to people, you know, like, we're just not going to like this world that we now live in where now the US and Russia and China and India have all tested missiles that can smash satellites. And, and I've said this to, to you know, DOD officials in meetings, you know, at some point your freedom of action becomes the other guy's freedom of action. And we may not like that when, you know, the other space powers are able to do the things we can do in space. And, and I think that is part of what's changing the U.S.'s position on this is suddenly realizing that. The more countries that develop anti-satellite weapons, the worse it will be for everyone. Space is huge, but the parts that we're interested in aren't. If anti-satellite testing goes unchecked, it will seriously hinder the use of space for countries all over the world, including ones that are just beginning to use space as a resource. Your first impulse might simply be to say, let's just ban all space weapons. But it turns out it's quite a bit more complicated than that. 
So for many years, the space security community in the United Nations tried to argue, okay, we need to ban space weapons. So we're just going in circles in the United Nations, going round and round and round and round about what a space weapon is. How do you ban it? How do you prevent people from having access to it? It's hard to ban space weapons because pretty much anything you can put in orbit for a good, helpful reason can also be used for a bad reason. That's what makes it very difficult to define a weapon. For example, if we had a spacecraft to remove space junk, which I'd like to remind you we definitely don't, that spacecraft could also potentially remove the satellites of other countries without their permission. How can you be sure that what looks like a space janitor isn't actually a space saboteur? And so it's really hard to have a, a, a conversation about what the threat actually is because it becomes classified. And so you have to kind of hint around at it or it becomes wildly hyperbolic. And so either way, you can't have good policy discussions. We don't have a, an honest grasp of what the issue is. Are there norms that need to be explained in terms of what's considered responsible behavior? You can't fix a problem if you don't even agree on what the problem is. In 2022, the United Nations decided to take a different approach. They created something called the Open-Ended Working Group on Reducing Space Threats. This set out to define responsible norms, rules, and behaviors. Victoria was invited to speak because she is a technically knowledgeable outside expert. She's compiled all of the open information about anti-satellite weapons. She can speak knowledgeably about the military uses of outer space, and she doesn't have to worry about security classifications. This is an important role that non-governmental experts play in facilitating dialogue. They don't have to keep anyone's secrets. I defined what a direct descent anti-satellite weapon is, and I talked about which countries have done these tests and you know why direct anti-satellite weapons that create debris are considered so destabilizing. What Victoria was doing was creating a shared universe of facts and language that this community could use. So step one, stop doing dumb shit. Step 1A, define dumb shit. Exactly. And then I guess step 1B, verify whether people are doing dumb shit. The UN security people in Geneva are no longer solely talking about defining what a weapon is and how do we ban weapons in space. There is now a much bigger conversation involving dozens of countries asking, what do they see as space threats? How do they define that? And what are some ideas for how to deal with those space threats, including both legally binding and non-legally binding? It may not sound particularly sexy, but yes, this is a space junk breakthrough. Look, this conversation is not going to solve the problems tomorrow, but it is a huge shift. And it creates, I think, more of an opportunity for progress than we've seen in decades. In April 2022, after years of admiring the problem and remaining resistant to even the slightest restriction on its military activities in space, the U.S. finally stepped up to model better behavior. The U.S. made a commitment not to conduct destructive anti-satellite missile tests. I am pleased to announce that as of today, the United States commits not to conduct destructive, direct, ascent, anti-satellite missile testing. Simply put, 
These tests are dangerous, and we will not conduct them. The reaction to that commitment was resounding global support. Over the next six months, nine more countries joined the United States in making that commitment as well. And then in December of 2022, the UN General Assembly passed a resolution where 155 countries voted not to conduct destructive anti-sailant missile tests. So you could argue that there's almost a norm emerging, that this sort of behavior is considered irresponsible and bad. This was a huge win for Brian and Victoria, and really anyone who cares about the sustainable use of space. The years they have spent putting together resources about the dangers of anti-satellite weapons and educating governments around the world were part of a movement to create a more sustainable space environment for everyone. It was finally paying off. As I'm sure you realize at this point, advocates rarely celebrate for more than a few moments before moving on to their next cause. Victoria and Brian, they're no different. To me, I think that is a clear area where we should be pushing for a legally binding regime around the prohibitions on that kind of testing. In part because we can do it. We can define the activity. We can attribute the activity. There's clear negative externalities. And we can create a verification regime. When Brian says legally binding regime, he means a treaty. Treaties don't negotiate themselves. They take years of discussion, trust building, and diplomacy. These treaties don't just come out of nowhere, like Athena jumping out of Zeus's head. They start to be discussed as concepts. Basically, what you're doing is you're planting the seed of something that kind of just have to hope that at some point it'll bear fruit. I'm pushing the conversation along in what I would like to think is a more helpful direction, and sometimes that's the best that you can do. Sometimes, most of the time, that's the best you can do, pushing the world inch by inch to a slightly better place. Thanks for listening. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, and this is The Reason We're All Still Here. It's executive produced by me, Andy Chug, and Whitney Donaldson. Special thanks to the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. This episode was produced by Kelsey Albright, Olivia Canny, and Stephen Wood. It was written by Kelsey Albright and me. Story editing from Sarah Joyner. Additional editing from Whitney Donaldson. Technical direction and engineering by Nick, the Wizard Dooley. Music and sound design by Andy Chuck. Fact-checking by Charles Richter. Additional production support from Gemma Castelli-Foley. Show art by Ronan Wood and Anton Marinick. Special thanks to Jessica Varnum, Christine Ragassa, Megan Larson, and Maggie Taylor. Today in the Middle East. What happens in Ukraine has consequences for what's happening. Around AI. 
Hello, listeners. I'm Gabrielle Sierra, host of the Why It Matters podcast from the Council on Foreign Relations. Look, the world of international affairs can feel overwhelming and complex, but it also shapes our lives every single day. So it pays to know what's going on out there. Why It Matters is a foreign policy podcast for the rest of us. And with a little bit of humor and a lot of questions, we're here to break down global topics and bring the world home to you. So join us every two weeks on Why It Matters, wherever you listen.